0: in the series titled "Yet He abides," where we've been sitting with the truth that we have a God who is not just important, but he is also present. Um, he is not just powerful, but he is also good and he is good to us. Um, and last week, Dane preached um, a great message about what the true nature of greatness in the kingdom is like, how how greatness in the kingdom does not look like greatness in the world. It looks like confessing your sin, repenting, and opening your hands to the transformation of the spirit. But this morning, let's kind of ask the flip side. Let's look at the other side of the coin. What do you do when you feel obscure? What do you do when you don't feel great? When you're in a season of life where things don't make sense, where the next step isn't obvious, where the thing you were depending on didn't happen, the, the, the constant wasn't as constant as you thought it was. What do you do when the season of your life feels ambiguous or unpredictable? You can't put it in a category. What do you do when life is complicated, messy, or in other words, normal? <laughs> what do you do, how do you live faithfully in the real world when you don't feel great? Ironically, we're going to start with a man who was extremely great in Scripture. In John 1, we're starting with John the Baptist. Now, Jesus himself called John the Baptist the greatest man ever born of a woman, which is all of them. Um, He also said he was, there has been no greater prophet until John. Like, John's prophetic ministry, it is just, it is the premier league. Like, he is like the prophet of prophets. He's a huge deal and he's got the following to show for it. John is a firebrand preaching in the middle of the wilderness a message of repentance. In theological language, John has absolutely zero chill. Like, he, he just can't stop, won't stop. Like, he's just going for it. Rather than preaching in the heart of society, he chooses the wilderness as his pulpit. Preaches way out in the middle of nowhere in a barren wilderness. But this remote locale does nothing to dissuade all of Judea from coming out to him in droves. John has a massive crowd coming out to him in the middle of the wilderness. What a sight! It's weird. The exponential growth of John's ministry had rendered him as the figurehead of a staggeringly popular movement. Like, John is trending. Like, he's a big deal. Everyone knows who John is. But John's movement isn't just big, it's also new. Whereas baptism was not a particularly new idea in Jewish community, the way John baptized was definitely different. Up until John, baptism was basically exclusively used as a conversion tool from Gentile to worshiper of Yahweh. It was a symbol that made the outsider an insider. But John's baptizing Jews. (laughs) It's kind of awkward, right? He's basically saying, Israel, come out of your so called promised land, come back into the wilderness, across the Jordan, and learn what God is doing in Israel anew. Get involved with the new thing that God is doing with his covenant people. He's doing a new thing. So John isn't just a preacher, he's not just a baptizer. In the eyes of the Jews, he's an innovator. He's a a visionary. He's reimagining possibilities and doing things in totally new, really exciting ways. Whereas John just kind of seems like preoccupied with preaching and dunking and everything else. The Jews view him as like a tech company CEO who is larger than life. All the grinding, all of the hustle has rendered them a figurehead. John's a big deal. And when someone's a big deal, it kind of invites questions. Our text today kicks off with the Jews sending a delegation of priests and Levites to come and talk to John, except it's not just the Jews. Later in verse 26, we learn the Pharisees are kind of behind the whole thing. Here's what we need to understand. The Pharisees have unbelievable social power. They are the heroes of the people, the, the champions of the Jewish people. People love the Pharisees, at least the Jews do tons of social power. And priests and Levites, they were at least connected to the temple system, which is the seat of political and religious power in the Jewish community. Simply put, this Jewish delegation that approaches John the Baptist, they are dripping with influence. They are powerful. They are significant. Or in other words, there's a lot they can offer John. John's preaching out in the middle of the wilderness, like, yeah, he's got a huge following, but these Jews, they are it. Like, power, influence, significance, political might, religious superiority, everything you can imagine, these Jews had it. What we often miss is there's a lot they can offer John. There's a lot they can do for John in terms of influence. And so this delegation, dripping with power, approaches John, the most successful prophet Israel has ever seen, and they ask him a seemingly innocuous, run-of-the-mill question. John, who are you? Who are you? Considering the sheer power and the influence of these Jews, and their motives that aren't named, but you can kind of feel, maybe it's better to phrase the question like this. John, who do you want to be? Who do you see yourself as? Who do you want to become? John, John, who do you, you want to be? Like, John, look, you've done quite the thing out here in the wilderness. Like, look at this crowd. It's amazing. We, we've never gotten a crowd that big. Imagine what you could achieve if you stepped out of your nameless obscurity in the wilderness and you made this thing official with us. You're preaching? Bro, it's fire. You're baptizing, weird, different. We like it. It draws a crowd. Imagine if you really went for it. If you really tried to make a name for yourself, you took that little weird, obscure wilderness thing that's kind of working and you gave it a shot in the arm, moved it to the center of Jerusalem. Temple steps preaching is what we're talking about, bro. Imagine how your crowd would grow. Think of it for a minute. If this is the kind of turnout you get when you're obscure in the wilderness, imagine what you'd get in the heart of political power. Imagine what you could do if you took for yourself just a little bit of greatness, a little bit of significance, how you could inject your ministry with bigger growth, bigger numbers, more power. Imagine what you could do. Imagine how much good your increase could produce. Look what you've been able to accomplish in obscurity. Imagine what you could do with fame. John, who do you want to be? Where do you see yourself going? What name do you want to make for yourself? And then the delegation proposes kind of two potential names for John. Like right off the bat, John's like, hey, I'm not the Messiah. And the Jews are like, okay, that's good. We have plans for that guy. How about Elijah? What do we have to do to get you in this shiny new Elijah today, right? What do we do to get you in this shiny new name, right, this new identity? What do we have to do, man? Come on. Sounds kind of weirdly specific. Can't remember the last time I've been asked if I'm Elijah? maybe you have, which is, by the way, not a compliment today, um, just to help you out. But in context, it was totally reasonable to compare John to Elijah. If you don't know who Elijah is, he is a larger-than-life Old Testament prophet. He preached and prophesied in the wilderness. He was not afraid to go toe-to-toe with wicked rulers. John the Baptist and Elijah have a ton of similarities. Both men preach in the wilderness. John goes up against Herod. Elijah goes up against Jezebel, right? Tons of similarities. They even dress like each other. John's whole, like, camel hair, like, leather belt get up, he got that from Elijah. Like, biblically, the, the Bible talks about Elijah dressed like that first. They dress like e- it's, it's like John's wearing Elijah's letterman jacket, right? It's an unmistakable comparison. And really significantly, Elijah never died. He was mysteriously taken up into heaven before witnesses. And a different prophet, Malachi, had prophesied, hey, before the day of the Lord, before the culmination of God's kingdom on earth, Elijah's going to come back. So the Jews go to John. They say, John, bro, are you Elijah? Or would you like to be? What we often miss here. Is that if John the Baptist were to step up and say, yeah, I'm, I'm fulfilling the role of Elijah, no one would have disagreed. No one would have batted an eye. That's not like, that, that's not really a trap. <laughs> it's a job promotion. It's basically saying, you, you nameless prophet out in the wilderness, look what you've done. Imagine if you had Elijah's name attached to this. What a shot in the arm that would be. The, the most powerful prophet in the Old Testament, imagine if people thought that's who you were. Imagine what you could achieve for the kingdom. Imagine your reach. Imagine your influence. Imagine how you can maximize your impact. Come on, John. It would have worked. It would have had those results for sure. But John goes, I'm, nope, sorry, not, not Elijah. And the Jews go, okay, I get it. Elijah's a bit much. How about the prophet? Now, if you don't catch that reference, it's okay. It's more obscure to us, but still extremely recognizable to the Jews. Way back in Deuteronomy, as Israel stood at the threshold of the promised land, right where John is standing, by the way, Moses, their prophet leader, makes a prophecy. He says, Before the day of the Lord, God will raise up a prophet, much like me, much like Moses. It will be a Mosaic prophet who will have the very authority of God in his mouth. It's Deuteronomy 18. Considering John's authoritative preaching and the fact that he stands at the threshold of the promised land, the covenant land that Moses led God's people towards, it also wouldn't be ridiculous for him to pick up that identity. People would have bought it. It would have gone like, yeah, a Mosaic prophet rising from obscurity to lead God's people across the Jordan back into the promised land. Yeah, John the Baptist could totally pick up that identity. Again, imagine what it would have done for his impact, his reach, the significance it would have injected into his already successful ministry. So the Jews kind of kick forward these two job promotions, these two identity promotions, asking John, who do you want to be? Who do you see yourself as in five years, right? Like maximize your impact, John. You're doing good things. Don't you want to do more for God? Don't you want to do more for the kingdom? Come on, man. Take for yourself the greatness that your hustle and your grind has earned you. You've been grinding it out. You've been in the wilderness. Bro, take your victory lap. Let's see. Let's go. Let's see this thing grow like crazy. Think about what you could do for God if you had a little bit more fame, a little bit more power a little bit more legitimacy in the eyes of others. But John sees through it, thank God, right? He sees this encounter for what it truly is. It's not a well-deserved opportunity. It's not a moment of honest inquiry. It's not a job promotion. It's temptation. Good and simple, straight-up spiritual temptation, Verse 19, it kicks off by saying, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. The word testimony can also be translated as witness. Like John is sitting in a witness box in a court of law, and he's being asked to give an answer for something. And it says, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. That's a different way you can translate the Greek. Not simply that he did not deny, but that he did not fail to be truthful. John's in the witness box. He's being interrogated by a spiritual prosecutor, and he does not fail to tell the truth. The text paints a picture of John under the white-hot gaze of temptation. The enemy is tempting John to expedite the slow and steady work of the spirit in the wilderness by taking for himself the greatness in the eyes of others. The enemy is tempting John to fast-track this whole ministry thing outside of the slow and steady work of the Spirit, and the enemy does this all the time. Before Jesus began his public ministry, there's a famous little moment where he is cast out into the wilderness and the enemy comes and tempts him, right? Check it out, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to them, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. What's the temptation? Greatness. Significance. Just let us think about this. When the enemy seeks to lead astray Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God what some would say what all should say the hardest person to lead astray the enemy brings out his biggest baddest temptation and it's not sex it's not money it's not drugs it's not vinyl records played backwards it's significance greatness ego he tries he tries to trigger the son of god's ego The devil thinks it might work. And he has reason for thinking so. Let's go way back to the garden, Adam and Eve. Eve is reaching her hand for the fruit in the garden that God said no to. The serpent slithers over, and he goes, You won't surely die. What will happen? You'll be like God, you'll be great. It's the devil's favorite temptation for faithful apprentices of Jesus. We often assume that the devil prefers to tempt Christians with sex, drugs, money, whatever, whatever moral behavior scares you the most. There is a biblical pattern of the enemy choosing greatness as his preferred temptation for the faithful followers of God. The enemy loves that temptation. It's a secret weapon. In fact, I think the enemy is kind of thrilled that Christians are often so focused on these destructive moral behaviors that we don't quite recognize the enemy tempting you with significance. He dangles success and greatness in front of faithful followers of God and says, take for yourself the significance that God is unwilling to give you. Say, God, thank you for the ministry. I'll take it from here. I'll fast track this thing. I just want to say it so clearly. Y'all, we have an enemy, the devil, who seeks to sabotage your abiding with Jesus. Jesus. He does not like you, to put it mildly. He seeks to lead you astray, away from Jesus, away from flourishing and into hell. The enemy consistently seeks to lead apprentices of Jesus astray by distracting them with worldly significance, worldly importance, and worldly greatness. And if you're sitting here today going, well, I can't remember the last time the devil tempted me directly, it's because it's been so normalized in our culture we don't even see it anymore. We live in a world where lust for significance has been normalized, where hungering and thirsting for importance is every day, especially in the Bay Area. When we see someone who is entirely future-focused and is solely fixated on getting to the next level, we don't express concern for their spiritual well-being. We applaud their hustle. It has become entirely normalized for someone to become obsessed with the person they want to become, while giving no thought to God's presence or calling for them in the present. Or, if you're not future-focused, maybe you romanticize the present, and you make your life look a little more significant and important and glossy than it actually is. Um, In about a week, um, I have kind of an impromptu 11-year high school reunion, um, it's 11 years because we forgot about the 10 years, which tells you a little bit something about the Valley Christian class of 2011. Um, there's not many of us. There's only like 100 of us from that class. Small school. Obviously really bad at math. Um, but we, we have a reunion coming up next week, uh, and I've been excited for this. I, most of these people, I haven't seen them since graduation from high school. Like, and back then, like, I was just like a kid who wanted to play music and be in a band. Like, that was my life goal. It went bad, obviously. Like, it's, this is better, this is good, um, but plan, plan A, uh, rock star did not, uh, did not work for me. Um, but anyway, I've been excited for this reunion. You know why? Because I have my life way more together than most of my classmates do. Married, have three kids, stable job I really care about, I'm looking at some of my classmates and I'm like, man, I got it way more together than you do. Why does that excite me? Am I even right? (laughs) I don't know. I haven't talked to them in 11 years. (laughs) I'm being so petty and shallow. This is an honest moment. Ego, temptation, right? significance importance. I'll have a really honest, icky moment with you that I'm really hoping you resonate with, or this is about to be really low for me. at night when i've been like going to sleep and like you think of something fun while you go to sleep i've been thinking of how i'm going to respond to the question of like hey jake aren't you still like doing like the youth thing over at vcc like i got classmates who like you know have mbas they they make way more money than i do their lives look more important and i've been thinking about how i'm going to answer that question of like yeah i'm still doing the youth thing but like i'm not like one of those youth pastors Right, I'm not like wearing like a Star Wars shirt and throwing fruit at people. I don't know why that's the image I have. I own several Star Wars shirts. Um, like I'm not, you know, I'm not playing dodgeball. I'm not like up on stage preaching a 15-minute message about the gospel of TikTok. Right, I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to be. You know, I'm like, I'm not one of those guys. I take this seriously. I'm like, I, I preach. Right, like you should see my students and like how like nuanced and mature and great they are. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> you won't like how this ends. Uh, I mean why do I why do I need to do that? Why why isn't it enough to just say, like, yeah, I'm a youth pastor? I love it. It's the truth. Why do I need to gloss up my career for someone else when I know the value God has given it? Ego, right? Ego plain and simple. I'm firmly convinced of the value of my calling. I view the pastorate as precious and preaching as a gift. It's a high, 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 high calling. Why do I feel the need to be like, no, but it's cooler and more impressive than you think it is, right? Like why? Ego. The devil's still working this way. Same temptation for John, same temptation for Jesus, same temptation for us, normalized in the sinful culture that invites you to hunger and thirst for significance instead of present faithfulness. We do the same thing with social media. Not be real, be real is holy ground. Don't touch be real. If you don't know what that is, Google it, you're welcome. But like Instagram, there's a reason that no one is posting long Instagram posts with like you at like 11 o'clock with no makeup on, taking out the trash like in your messy side yard, right? There's a reason no one's posting that stuff. It's not significant enough. It's a reason we all get selfies on a beach. The selfie has become an icon for our own significance, and we implore others to believe in it and worship it. We live in a world in which we are conditioned towards significance addiction. Same temptation as Jesus, Eve, and John. Here's how John responds to it. In response to the question of, John, who are you? Who do you want to be? John says, I am not. I'm not. I'm I'm not the Messiah. Not Elijah. Not Elijah. Not the prophet I am not. Whereas the key confession of the life of Jesus is, "I am, I am the good shepherd. I am the door for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, the life. John's primary confession is, "I am not not the Messiah, not Elijah, not the prophet." And they say, "Well, who are you?" And he goes, "Oh fine, I'll tell you who I am." And he doesn't even use his own name. He says, "I am man, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's all I am. I'm just a voice. You feel the humility in that? Where he's not like, I'm the voice. He's like, I'm just a voice, crying in the wilderness. In fact, when the Jews are imploring him to get all hyped up on how cool and how big shot of a prophet he is, he just quotes another prophet, (laughs) Isaiah. He doesn't even come up with his own Instagram bio. He's just like, he quotes someone else of like, I'm just the voice then why are you baptizing? It's just water. It's a symbol. It matters. It's important. But he goes, uh, Jesus is coming. He'll baptize you with the spirit, right? Like I, this is water, man. <laughs> like, I'm just standing in the dirty Jordan. It's not that big of a deal. The whole Spirit makes it a big deal. And then John gets even lower, and he goes, he goes and you know what, guys? He goes, there's one among you who you do not know. In other words, he does not fit into your expectations of greatness. So you're a blind to him because all you see is greatness. He goes, there is one who is a lowly suffering servant, and I am not even willing to untie his sandal. Why would you untie someone's sandal in this context? Think Last Supper. To wash the other, wash their feet, right? A slave's job, a dirty job. John goes, I'm not even willing to begin to prepare to do that. I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice. Those are Isaiah's words. This is just water. I am not even worthy to be a slave for someone you find obscure. Low, 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 low. I am not. How powerful is that? John recognizes his present assignment. He resists the enemy's temptation to surpass it, and he lowers himself into faithfulness. John isn't down on himself. He doesn't have bad self-esteem. He is just so deeply captivated with the goodness of his present calling that he is able to resist the others people, other people tempting him into significance. John's not willing to sidestep his own present calling. He knows that to hunger and thirst for significance or greatness is often to despise God's calling for you in the present. If all you're convinced with is success in the future, it's likely you haven't attended to calling in the present. He recognizes his present assignment. He resists the enemy's temptation to surpass it, and he lowers himself into faithfulness. And just as the enemy has a practice of tempting us with significance, faithful followers of Jesus have a practice of resisting that and freely choosing obscurity. Martin Luther King Jr., um, a little unknown story about his life, but before he became the civil rights activist that he became so famous for, he was an unbelievable academic. Like, he, he, he earned his doctorate at a, at a fairly young age, and he was like, he was the guy He was offered several deanships in the liberal North where prejudice was not gone, but segregation was on the way out. Far easier to live there as a black man than the South. But what does he do? He gives up all of his academic prowess. He says no to every deanship, flat out, says, I am not. And what does he do? He says, I have a moral obligation to go back down south into Alabama, the cradle of the Confederacy where segregation was alive and well. Give myself over into the hands of the oppressor and be with my community because I am called to be with my people. Jeez. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another great example, also achieves unbelievably academic success at a young age. Um, however, young people in the room, Bonhoeffer is smarter than you. Like, he's He's done more than you at your age. Like, as a toddler, he was already doing more than you. Like, he earned his doctorate crazy young. He was in America an academic powerhouse theologian. Like, people thought he was the guy. He was the guy. And then he starts to hear rumors about the German Lutheran church, parts of it, starting to bend the knee to the Nazification of the church. So he hops on a plane, gets rid, basically forsakes all of his academic prowess and goes and he's simply with his people. He he's a pastor, right? That's his calling. He starts an underground movement of those keeping the image of Jesus pure from the Nazification from the church and teaching true discipleship under threat to his life which eventually takes his life. You'll notice all four men by the way, all lose their lives for the sake of Jesus or for the sake of the gospel. Jesus crucified, John beheaded, Martin Luther King shot, Bonhoeffer executed. Lowliness is not an alternative path to worldly greatness as though you're gaming the system. Pick up your cross. That's the lowliness offered to disciples of Jesus. They recognize, faithful followers of Jesus recognize their present uh, assignment. They resist the enemy's temptation to surpass it and they lower themselves into faithfulness. Bonhoeffer, King, John the Baptist, they all understand the same thing. That faithfulness to Jesus nearly always requires that you resist your own hunger and thirst for significance. That the enemy always seeks to tempt apprentices of Jesus to forget about the present and to become consumed with future success. But what these men truly understand, what they truly know, is simply this. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, it is simply required of stewards that they be found faithful. High schoolers, what is it that God requires of you? Faithfulness. Thank you. Faithfulness. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Not that they be found successful, not that they be found interesting, not that they be found important, but that they be found faithful. See, God does not require your success, He requires faithfulness in the present with what He has given you here and now. Full stop. God doesn't need your success. He has plenty. He doesn't need your significance. He has it on tap. He is significance. He doesn't need your success. What what God requires is your simple, good, old-fashioned, mere faithfulness. It's mere faithfulness through and through. God doesn't need you to take things to the next level. He doesn't need you to hustle and grind and take for yourself. He needs your faithfulness here and now. And faithfulness tends to be a deeply practical, down-to-earth thing. Ironically, when we over-spiritualize faithfulness, we end up saying, I must increase so that he may increase all the more. My increase will lead to his increase. I'm going to strategically leverage myself, take all the greatness I can. If I increase, then he increases as if you were a direct mirror for God himself. We instead should have John's confession, I must decrease that he may increase. I must decrease, he he will increase. It's not I must increase so that he must increase. God doesn't need your increase if he wants to increase you, exalt you, he knows where to find you. God does not require your success. He requires your mere faithfulness with what you have in the here and the now, which means this, this is the good news. It is enough to be merely faithful. To be merely faithful, y'all, it's enough. It's just enough. It's enough to be merely faithful. Why? Why? Because Jesus abides with the merely faithful. It's enough to be merely faithful because Jesus has drawn close to the merely faithful. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, who did not view equality with God a thing to be used for his advantage, but rather took the form of a lowly servant, humbled in obedience, even to death on a cross, The incarnate son of God literally embodies lowliness and mere faithfulness and he abides with us when we are merely faithful. You want to grow closer to God? Be merely faithful. That's it. Mere faithfulness. High schoolers, I think about you a lot with this. Um, You're in a, uh, we know each other, but uh, you're, you're in a season where it's just like, You're being asked at age 16, 17, 18 to basically know what you want to do for the rest of your life. That's absurd. (laughs) Uh, There's this pressure just to, there's a pressure to seize significance. It's not enough just to get a good job. Like, you need to be somebody, right? Like, come on, be that person. Y'all, it's enough to be merely faithful. In high school, if you can be a good friend, a patient listener, and a source of joy and peace for your community, it's enough. If you can abide with Jesus in high school, it's enough. It is enough to be merely faithful, to be faithful in obscurity. It is enough. College-age student, emerging adults, young marrieds, it's also a weird season in life where it's like you're no longer a child, you're an adult, but like you're still in that liminal middle space of like, who am I? <laughs> like, who am I becoming? What's the next right step? Man, it's, it's enough to be merely faithful. It's enough to be merely faithful with your community. Even in the midst of ambiguity with your career and future aims, if in the present you are rigorously in prayer, you are learning the word and you are in community, it is enough. I'm not saying don't plan for your future, you should, be a good steward. But you don't need to seize it for yourself. You are free to be a nobody and it's enough. It's enough to be merely faithful, it's enough to say I am not. Uh, I think about um, people who um, just became parents. Um, we have a two-month-old in my house, um, like me and my wife. It's not just there. Um, like it's our child. Um, it's, it's our third and not our first. But when you, when you have a child, it, there, it's an identity-shaking thing. Like all of a sudden, you have your career over here, your friends over here, your know, baby right there, and it's like, who am I? Right? What is required of me? Especially when it comes to moms. Hey, it's enough to be a faithful mother. I don't know who needs to hear that, but to be a faithful mom, like, that is enough. Think about Mother Mary in Scripture, the mother of Jesus. Her only role in Scripture is to be a mother of Jesus. You notice that there's nothing else she does. She's just a mom, and Jesus sure seems to think it's enough. Some of his last words are instructing the disciples to take care of his mom. Jesus finds faithful motherhood to simply be enough. Full stop, it's enough. You don't have to take significance. You don't have to take importance. It's enough. Same for, same for good fatherhood. To keep your garden well, to take accountability for your home, to be a source of comfort and blessing to women and children. That faithfulness, it's enough. Faithfulness and fatherhood's enough. Those who just became empty nesters, you're graduating students out of high school, and all of a sudden, this, this thing in which you found significance and importance for the past 18 years is gone. They're not in your house anymore. And you're like, this. that, that rocks your identity, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's a moment you kind of have to work through. It's enough to be faithful. It's enough to be on your knees contending for your kids who aren't in the house. Mere faithfulness, it is enough. God requires faithfulness of you. Faithfulness is enough. Retirees, those who have ended their careers and are moving into that final act of life where you're just like, no career? What do I do? (laughs) Right? Man, it's enough to be faithful, to contend for the next generation, to disciple young people, to simply be prayerful and humble and honest and kind. It's enough to be faithful because Jesus dwells with the merely faithful. Jesus dwells with the merely faithful. Jesus isn't to be found in the seat of power. He's to be found with the lowly. Freely choose faithful obscurity. Within it there is life because within it there is Jesus. I want to end surprisingly in a plot twist with a poem. Um, This is my Hardestian moment. Um, I I know I can't use poetry in high school ministry. Um, I'm not a big poetry guy, uh, but this is one I used to have printed out on my desk for years and years and years. This is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one month before he was executed. Who am I? Am I really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O oh God, and I am thine. Let that be your confession in a culture that demands you to answer the question, Who are you? We live in a world that asks, Who are you? Who do you want to be? Who do you see yourself as? What significance ought you to take? Who are you? Let the confession of faithful Christians, of faithful apprentices, simply be, Whoever I am, God knows, and he abides with me. Whoever I am, I am not, but he is, and he abides with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the good news that you abide with the merely faithful. Help us to be merely faithful. Help us to bear the image of of your son who did not leverage his equality with God for importance or significance, but rather died on a cross. Help us to, in the same way, freely choose faithful obscurity in our life, mere faithfulness, recognizing that it is enough because you abide with us, and it is enough to have God abide with us. Your abiding presence is enough. Undo the temptations of the enemy where we have... We have bought the lie of the enemy normalized in culture that to be someone is the good news. Help us to see through the temptation. Resist it the way you did and your followers did. Help us to rest in mere faithfulness and in your abiding presence. In your name, amen.